You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I go over campus news with details on a COVID-19 outbreak on a semester at sea cruise ship. I go over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and policies, and we hear from students for Holocaust awareness about the upcoming events for Holocaust Awareness Week. After that, Coda goes over details on Biden's new Supreme Court nominee and a boycott on Russian vodka. Then we hear from Jessica Gilmore of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Forest Service on wildfire prevention. To conclude today's show, Coda explains some updates on technology with how tech companies like Facebook and Starlink are supporting Ukraine. Let's move right into campus and local news. On to campus news for Tuesday, March 1st. Four Colorado State University agriculture leaders are being honored by the Denver Business Journal and the Colorado Farm Bureau for their work within the industry. According to Stacy Nick of CSU Source News, Kim Stackhouse Lawson, Gregory Graff, Adam Dario, and Robert Fetch will all be featured in the Who's Who in Agriculture by the Denver Business Journal. The list comes from a variety of fields that impact Colorado's food economy, including crop and livestock production, water, biotech, agribusiness, and food-slash-nutrition. Stackhouse Lawson is the director of AgNext and professor of animal science. Graf is a professor of agriculture and resource economics. Dario is the Temple Grandin Equine Center director of administration, and Fesch is the co-project director of the Colorado AgriAbility Project. CSU is celebrating a record for receiving more than $200 million in donations in a single calendar year. According to Bruce Hallmark of CSU Source News, the donations have provided emergency funding for those facing financial crises caused by the pandemic, scholarships, innovative programs to increase equity and access, and groundbreaking research to build a sustainable practice at CSU. Over 7,000 new members joined CSU's donor family in the past year, which adds on to the approximate 28,000 donors CSU already has. One of CSU's semester at sea cruise ships is experiencing a COVID-19 outbreak. According to Austria Cohen of the Collegian, after the ship visited Malta, an island country in the Mediterranean Sea, 43 people had tested positive for the virus. No one was seriously ill from COVID-19 on the ship, but others who tested positive for influenza A were. Audra Brickner is the Vice President of Advancement and Chief External Affairs Officer for Semester at Sea, and she told the Collegian that there is a quarantine section on the ship that has special ventilation where students who test positive are required to go, unless the country they are in has a different policy. All voyagers on the ship, student or not, are required to be fully vaccinated. It is Holocaust Awareness Week at CSU. Many events and speakers will be joining us throughout the week. Make sure to listen to CSU's Rabbi Gorelick in an interview coming up in this episode. Now on to local news. The former second-highest-ranking officer in the Johnstown Police Department has been arrested for felony stalking, according to Rob Lowe of Fox 31 News. Aaron Sanchez was a commander before being arrested on February 3rd, after being accused of stalking a woman that was a former employee for Sanchez. The victim, who was unnamed, accused Sanchez of stalking her from December of 2019 until July of 2021. 
after GPS records proved that Sanchez had driven past the victim's house multiple times a week, he was arrested. Images of the victim and her home were also found on Sanchez's devices. A protection order was put in place, and Sanchez was also ordered to wear an ankle monitor as part of Sanchez's bond conditions. Sanchez is no longer required to wear the ankle monitor after his lawyer said there have been no reported incidents since June of 2021. For more information on Aaron Sanchez, visit kdvr.com. Larimer County received a donation of more than $250,000 for detox areas at the county's new Behavioral Health Center. The Behavioral Health Center is currently under construction in southwest Fort Collins, and the center will provide two levels of withdrawal management, including the social detox and medically monitored detox. It will also have a 24-7 behavioral health urgent care, a crisis stabilization unit, and an on-site pharmacy, according to Sadie Swanson of the Coloradoan. The donation comes from the Community Foundation of Northern Colorado's Hope Fund. The Hope Fund has been working towards funding a withdrawal or detox facility, and although the voter-approved facility is being funded by tax dollars, Commissioner Kristen Stevens said that this money will help stretch these services and help with rising building costs. The center is scheduled to open in the summer of 2023. That's all for campus and local news. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. Thanks for listening to my news updates. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to KCSU on 90.5 FM. Welcome, class. Today we'll be talking about the elements. We're going to start with boron, number five. This class is boron. (laughs) You know, Jimmy, boron is a trace element, so you actually need it to live. Wait a second. Who are you? I'm DJ Pompey. It's a crossover episode. Oh, I get it. So that's why science matters. That's exactly right, Jimmy. And it's why you should listen to me, DJ Pompey. And me, DJ Attorney at Law. On Thursdays from 5 to 7 p.m. to hear more about why science matters on our show, Science Matters. We're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. If you missed any part of Ellie Shannon's campus and local news, check out our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen back. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Florida State University reports nearly 9,000 cases of COVID-19 among students, staff, and faculty. Only two new cases were reported Monday, 
and cases were only reported among staff and faculty. Larimer County reports a high level of transmission for COVID-19. The county reports over 75,000 overall cases of COVID-19, along with over 460 deaths. Larimer County's case rate sits at 117 cases per 100,000 residents, and less than 5% of COVID-19 tests taken in the county came back positive in the past week. 25 COVID-19 patients receive treatment in area hospitals, and intensive care units report that they are at 80% capacity. Due to high rates of transmission, public health officials recommend the following precautions. Get vaccinated and boosted against COVID-19 if you have not already. Wear masks indoors when people from outside your household are present. Masks should fit snug, and KN95 masks are especially recommended. Monitor yourself for COVID-19 symptoms, and stay home even if your symptoms are mild. Get tested immediately if you notice any symptoms of COVID-19. If you test positive, seek treatment and isolate. Postpone all indoor gatherings, and in the case that it cannot be postponed, require that all attendees be vaccinated and wear masks. Consider limiting the number of invited households present and move activities outside if possible. Employers are encouraged to promote remote work options for employees, and the county also reminds residents to continue practicing social distancing. The state of Colorado has over 1.3 million cases of COVID-19, and over 12,500 Coloradans have died of COVID-19-related complications. 4.7 million people have been tested for COVID-19 in the state, and under 60,000 people are currently hospitalized for COVID-19-related illness. 10.2 million vaccine doses have been administered in the state, and 3.9 million Coloradans are fully immunized against COVID-19. The U.S. reports over 78.7 total cases of COVID-19, along with over 945,000 deaths. Over 81% of eligible people are at least partially vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for Tuesday's COVID-19 updates. Information from this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If you are a student, staff member, or faculty member at CSU, visit covid.colostate.edu to submit vaccine informations and get the most recent information on COVID-19 at the university. Up next, Ellie Shannon is going to be speaking with Rabbi Yerachmiel Gorelick. This week is the 24th time that Colorado State University has presented Holocaust Awareness Week. From February 25th to March 4th, there will be many events that will be held in honor of Holocaust survivors. Today I'm joined by Rabbi Gorelick from CSU, and he's here to tell me about the week as well as how Holocaust survivor Oscar Osai Sladek will be speaking tomorrow at Lori Student Center's Grand Ballroom. So, Rabbi Gorelick, how are you doing today? Good, thank you, Ellie. Thank you so much for having me. Good, thank you so much for joining me. My first question is, what is Holocaust Awareness Week at CSU? That is a fantastic question. So, Holocaust Awareness Week at CSU is essentially a week-long commemoration of uh, what happened during the Holocaust. And it serves a twofold purpose and it has a, uh, a twofold objective, not only to remember the, the horrendous slaughter and massacre of, of six million Jews, as well as millions of other victims, but also to learn the important lessons from the Holocaust going forward, taking those lessons in order to create a better and a kinder world. And so we've always tried to focus on those messages. In that week, we have a a series of events that will appeal to people on every level. We have a film night, which just happened last night. We have a lecture, which is happening today. Uh, During the week, we have a litany of names, which is a wonderful opportunity for people to participate and and read from a book of victims at the university every day. And we have a field of flags, each flag representing a certain amount of victims. And then 
We finished it at the end, the last day of the week, with a, a march, a walk to remember and a memorial. But tomorrow night is the big event. It's that extraordinary opportunity. I would say even historic because it's increasingly rare to get to hear from a Holocaust survivor. And we have one that's actually coming, which was a challenge before COVID. You can only imagine how much more of a challenge it is um, after COVID, you know, to find one that's able, that's willing. Um, we had to put a lot of effort into that and create the right sort of environment that they would be comfortable. So we're very excited. Really want to encourage everyone to participate in, in tomorrow's event. Uh, you won't get that chance for too much longer, unfortunately. And why is it important for both Jewish and non-Jewish students to engage with events this week and educate themselves on the Holocaust year-round? You know, a peaceful world is a collaboration of all elements of humanity. That's just the nature. Nobody lives in a vacuum. We have to work together. We see that on a daily, daily basis, right? We see the things that are going on in this world today, right? We have to stand together as humanity, as one people, and insist and assert and do everything that we can that a peaceful, happy life and those opportunities are provided to each person here. I know most of the survivors that were brought have always emphasised that. You know, what will you do in a moment of darkness? What will you do? Will you be an uh, inactive bystander or will you take a stand and say, no, you know, this is unacceptable? We've always seen that message resonate from the survivors. It's almost like their life mission, you know, to share that word, to share that inspiration, to share that hope. And at the same time, what I always found incredible, Ellie, is the most joyous people that I've ever met have been Holocaust survivors, which is counterintuitive. You know, they lived, you know, in places that can only be described as hell on earth, right? They went through unfathomable experiences why are they the most joyous it's because when you have no choice the only way to survive is to have hope and the irony of it is how many people walk away from those interactions with the survivors at our events not just having had the opportunity to hear living testimony from a survivor but also to find inspiration in their own lives everybody's struggling with their own darkness their own form of a holocaust if you like right and to hear a message of resiliency and hope and, and joy that it can still be found no matter how dark your life is, is something incredibly powerful. So I encourage people not just to come to listen to a survivor of the Holocaust and the Second World War, actually come and be surprised how you'll be inspired in your own life, how to triumph over your own challenges, because there's no better a person than a survivor who's done that to teach us those important lessons, something we need ever more in our absolutely crazy world. Hope is an amazing thing to have, especially after walking away from events such as the Holocaust, which is why it's so amazing that Osai Sladek is going to be coming to CSU tomorrow. And Sladek was one of the first survivors to tell his story publicly. Can you tell me a little bit about Osai Sladek and why yeah. you think the community should come hear him speak? You know, Ossie Sladek, or otherwise as Oscar, is an extraordinary individual, and he brings a very unique perspective to his experience. You know, for the most part, we've had people who have survived the camps come and speak, and they talk of the horrors there. Ossie Sladek was a child, and he talks about the incredible impact that had on a child, the experiences that it had on him. You can see in his life the things that he accomplished afterwards, how he translated and processed that trauma in a very unique way. You know, he became a musician of note, has won awards. He served in the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force, the Israeli Army. The music that he wrote for them, 
He wrote the song for the paratroopers, right? This is an extraordinary individual who has taken those horrendous experiences he had as a child and almost transformed them into a life experience that he can share with others and uplift others in a way that I've never seen done before. And I think that's, uh, that's just extraordinary. He uh, is the only child in his family to actually survive the Holocaust, which is extraordinary. That is extraordinary. And he's obviously very strong to still be here today after all the events that he endured. Absolutely. I really encourage everyone to participate. What groups and organizations are helping put on events? Thank you for asking that. It's it's actually a big collaboration. The hosting uh, organization is Students for Holocaust Awareness at CSU, Holocaust Awareness Week at CSU. They've been around for uh, over 20 years. And then it's a collaboration with some of the uh, other organizations on campus, the Jewish ones being Hillel, a Jewish student organization on campus, Chabad Jewish student organization on campus. Uh, there's two Greek life Jewish organizations, the Fraternity and a Sorority, AEPI and SAEPI. Also, we could not do that without the university partners. The Laurie Student Centre is a supporter. ASCSU is a major sponsor. RHA, Residence Hall Association, is a sponsor. The, the administration really supports us. President McConnell will be there and all the other higher-ups at the university, So, as well as the city. Um, we have quite a few people coming to support the event as well. So it's really a collaborative effect. And, and I can say that it's, it's, it's won awards and uh, it has national recognition, uh, the program that we put on here at CSU. And you mentioned Students for Holocaust Awareness. What kind of work do they do throughout the year besides just this week? I mean, this is pretty much the purpose of uh, Students for Holocaust Awareness, and it does take months of planning. I can tell you this, that all the students that serve on the Committee of Students Holocaust Awareness serve on other committees during the year in different uh, different events and different organisations. But in terms of the mandate of this particular organisation, this is the one the one big one a year. And I, I do believe it's the largest student-run you know, event of the year. So that, that's a lot of work. These kids put a lot of work into it. I wish they were here to uh, be able to speak to you. But let me give a shout-out to them. We have Denise Peters, who is um, the president of the organisation, has been for quite a few years. We have Dylan Curry, Sarah Daniels, Chaya Geltzer, uh, Jacob Ginsberg, uh, Natalie Dillman, and then myself as an advisor, as well as Mariah DeGree from Hillo, also as a co-advisor for uh, all students of Holocaust Awareness. Well, big shout out to all of these students because they do so much work throughout the year. Thank you, Ellie. And how can students or the general public participate in Holocaust Awareness Week? Well, um, by coming to the events, there's a lecture today at, at 12 o'clock in uh, Longspeak, room 302, by one of our very own Jewish faculty members here addressing Holocaust today, and that's at noon. And I highly recommend everybody participates in that because it'll engage in a conversation of how we can apply the lessons of the Holocaust today. Of course, to show up early so you can get a seat for tomorrow. And in general, we're always looking for people to help with the planning. And we usually send a call out sometime a few months before the event, asking people to help participate. We do get a lot of participation, whether it's the flag or other events as well. People should keep an eye out. There's a Facebook um, page called uh, Holocaust Awareness at CSU, as well as holocaust.colostate.edu. We usually have the uh, the year's upcoming events as well. So there's many ways to uh, participate. Can you tell us about the Field of Flags, which is on display outside of the Laurie Student Center? Yes. On campus? Did you see that? I did. It looks beautiful. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's been going on for quite some time and it's it's just a wonderful way to both engage community as well as provide a visual remembrance of those uh, lives that were lost. And each flag represents a certain number in the thousands of the survivors um, and then placed in a particular way. And uh, when people go by, they can see the signage and say, oh, wow, you know, stop to think about the enormity of it, right? I mean... We can't put six million flags up, right? So when each flag represents so much, I think it's a stark reminder for people themselves to reflect, reflect not just and not just to honour the lives that are lost, but reflect on how precious life is, how precious life is for themselves and perhaps it'll provide a little more bounce to this step. So a little more enthusiasm, a little more encouragement to go into that day tackling life's challenges. And Monday night, Students for Holocaust Awareness showed the movie Jojo Rabbit, which yes. is also streaming on Disney Plus for those who couldn't make it. Yes. Can you tell us why this movie was chosen and the importance of contemporary media made to tell stories from the Holocaust? That's a great question. In the committee, every group of students is in charge of a different event and they essentially decide what will best appeal. They felt Jojo Rabbit because it sees something in perhaps an irreverent uh, manner would appeal to today's youth. Because while it may be irreverent and it may be Hollywood, it does portray some very powerful messaging about the Holocaust. And they thought that in in today's times, especially, we're already surrounded with so much darkness and gloom, perhaps to offer a a different approach uh, to bring uh, Holocaust awareness to people would resonate. And and from what I've heard, uh, we haven't done our uh, debrief yet, from what I've heard, it was very impactful and and, uh, the participants had a meaningful experience. Well, I wasn't able to make it, but I definitely am going to stream it. Good. Excellent. And Ellie, it's not too late to make the event tomorrow if you have time. And it will be recorded and it will be live streamed as well. And people uh, can just go online to catch that uh, to catch that link. Perfect. Is there anything else you think we should know about this week, along with Students for Holocaust Awareness? You know, if everyone can walk away thinking about how they can commit to find one new way to bring some brightness into the world as they go about pursuing their own life's dreams. I think we're ready to be on track. We're ready to be uh, remembering the survivors and their message in a positive way. That's what we hope people do, participate in an event, any event that you can, and make a commitment to how you can contribute to a, a brighter kind of world. It can be a simple act of kindness for another person, right? Or you could get involved in some sort of volunteer organisation. There are so many ways where a person can participate we just love to see that have that positive effect. I mean, that's the primary function of, of Judaism and its message is we can and must be active participants in uh, bringing kindness to this world. And no matter how horrific an event, it's always going to be about creating light from darkness from that event. That's what we'd like to see. This should not just stay in memory, but it should be active, active remembrance, which means us actively doing things to counter the darkness that was caused by the Holocaust and other tragedies. Well, thank you so much, Rabbi Gorilik, for joining me today. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Ellie, the same. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. Of course. And for more information on Holocaust Awareness Week, visit holocaust.colostate.edu. We'll be right back with National News. I'm Ellie Shannon for KCSU News.
Welcome, class. Today we'll be talking about the elements. We're going to start with boron, number five. This class is boron. You know, Jimmy, boron is a trace element, so you actually need it to live. Wait a second. Who are you? I'm DJ Pompey. It's a crossover episode. Oh, I get it. So that's why science matters. That's exactly right, Jimmy. And it's why you should listen to me, DJ Pompey. And me, DJ Attorney at Law. On Thursdays from 5 to 7 p.m. to hear more about why science matters on our show, Science Matters. (laughs) I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News. You're listening to Tuesday's National News on the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 FM. In protest of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, bars in the U.S. boycott Russian vodka. Paul Weissman at the Associated Press reports that bars are promoting Ukrainian vodka brands like Vector as they pull Russian bottles off the shelves. So far, liquor stores and bars say that they cannot keep Ukrainian vodka on the shelves due to high demand. Drew Podroberic, a general manager at Southern Spirits Liquor Store in Indian Land, South Carolina, told AP that Kozak, a Ukrainian vodka brand, is selling out much faster than the store's staff had expected. As a result of the trend, some lawmakers and governors moved to create sanctions on purchases of Russian vodka in their states. In Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine banned new sales and purchases of Greenmark and Russian Standard Vodka. Some bar owners, like Bob Quay of Bob's Bar in Grand Rapids, Michigan, said he isn't sure if he'll ever offer Russian alcohol to customers again, with customers and staff responding so positively to the new Ukrainian brands. Quay even ordered a Ukrainian flag for his bar to show support beyond the economic side of his business. A bill supporting the future of abortion access died in the Senate Monday. As the Women's Health Protection Act went through a procedural vote, it failed to pass after Republicans didn't support the bill, reports Gabrielle Border and Moira Warburton from Reuters. Democrats planned for the bill's failure, but after facing some pressure from voters in blue states to push it through, senators put it up for a vote to follow the wishes of constituents. The bill intended to show support for abortion rights and try to guarantee legal protections as the U.S. Supreme Court plans to hear a new case on abortion access this year. Far from reaching the 60 necessary votes to overcome a Senate filibuster, the bill only received 46 yeas, or approving votes. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin voted against the bill, along with Republican Senators Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, who sometimes vote to approve Democrat-led bills. Supporters of abortion aren't taking this as a loss, though, says Reuters. Some supporters say this showed where senators stand on abortion rights, and that being able to push the bill into the Senate at all is a huge deal. Republicans in the Senate took the bill's failure to pass as a victory, leaving the future of abortion access up to the Supreme Court in individual states. The Environmental Protection Agency may be limited in the fight against climate change depending on an upcoming Supreme Court case. According to Nina Totenberg at National Public Radio, an Obama administration-era policy that had the EPA set a legal carbon limit for each state was appealed by several states and coal industry leaders. While the law was originally blocked in the Supreme Court another time and repealed by former President Donald Trump's administration, the Supreme Court is taking on the case with the hope to address what limits the EPA and other regulatory departments can place on individuals, states, or the federal government. Tom Johnson, a lawyer who previously worked against the EPA's Clean Power Plan, said that the issue with this level of regulation was that it told states what mix of renewable and non-renewable energy sources they could have, rather than leaving it up to local jurisdictions. 
With this case reviewing the power of regulatory departments, some believe this hearing could limit what exactly Congress can do to set interest rates or other similar limits. Kintaji Brown-Jackson, Biden's nomination for the Supreme Court, is set to meet with the Senate for her confirmation process. According to Melissa Quinn and Kristen Brown at CBS News, Jackson will meet with Senate leaders from the Republican and Democratic parties as she moves through the confirmation process for her seat in the court. Jackson is the first Black woman to be nominated for a seat in the high court, which follows the campaign promise set by Biden when he said he'd nominate a Black woman to the court. Jackson is 51 and worked as a clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer, who she would be replacing. Jackson would need support from all 50 Democratic senators to make it through her nomination. Republicans promised to review her full academic and professional record, which includes a graduation from Harvard, amongst other noteworthy accomplishments. Three Republicans previously voted to confirm her as she joined the D.C. Circuit Court in June, and Senator Mitt Romney said he is open to voting for her as well. I'm Coda Babcock with KCSU News. Now we'll hear from Jessica Gilmore of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Forest Service on wildfire prevention. Here in Colorado, we typically see an incredibly harsh wildfire season due to our dry climate. We're joined today by Jessica Gilmore from the USDA Forest Service to talk about human-caused wildfires and how our community can work to prevent them. Thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So the USDA press release that was sent to our news team says that nearly 90% of wildfires are human-caused. Can you tell us a bit about that statistic and how it was calculated? Sure. But based on uh, statistics from 2012 through last year, 2021, on average, more than 50,000 wildfires start each year through human carelessness. And that's honestly from uh, just not knowing the most common causes are campfires or people who leave their campfires abandoned, backyard burn piles, and then careless discarding of smoke, smoking materials or barbecue coals. A lot of folks don't know what to do with those coals when they're done grilling out the hamburgers. And then third is our operating equipment that throws sparks like chainsaws or even lawnmowers that nick a, a rock while you're mowing the lawn and cause a spark. All right. And then addressing those hikers, campers, and other folks who might find themselves recreating in open spaces and causing those fires. What tips do you have for preventing fires for people who are driving in wild areas, camping and hiking and might need to start a fire? We want to make sure that folks know, always bring water with you. If you intend to have a fire, a campfire, and that's more than just the drinking bottle of water. You want to stay hydrated while you're out there hiking, but then when you get back to camp, you need extra water to um, put out those coals when you're done with your campfire. Also bring a shovel so you can stir, stir the water and the burnt debris. If you're out just hiking for the day, when you park your car, park in designated parking spots. That they're usually gravel or asphalt, free of vegetation that could spark. Uh, if you park in dry grass, those hot exhaust pipes can start a vegetation fire. Part of the press release from the USDA Forest Service mentioned parking as a way to prevent wildfires from being started. So how can parking in certain areas basically avoid the elevation of fire risks? Uh, we just want to remind folks that if you are parking in dry grass, that vegetation is primed already to, to spark. So you're parking a, a vehicle that you've been driving for quite some time and the exhaust pipe is hot or the underbelly is hot, that vegetation can, can light on fire. You don't even, don't even know it. You've already walked off to the trailhead and a, a wildfire has sparked under your car. 
Also, uh, another vehicle message for us to pass along is folks that are towing things. If you if you tow a trailer or a boat, make sure that those chains are hitched high and aren't dragging along the asphalt as you're driving because the metal along the asphalt can throw sparks into the median vegetation and then you've sparked a roadside brush fire. All right. And then something that you mentioned earlier on is that people might be unaware of basically addressing wildfire prevention in how they treat fires in their own yard. So a lot of people burn yard debris or have backyard campfires. Can you explain a bit about what they can do to make these tasks safer and prevent more wildfire hazards? Absolutely. You know, many people don't realize it, but it's always wildfire season uh, somewhere in the U.S., In the wintertime, we get lured into maybe a false sense of security because there's snow or rain. But, you know, those windy days, those are problematic as well. If you're burning a a small brush pile in your backyard, that wind can kick up and and carry embers to vegetation that isn't quite quite wet and, and still dried out. And that can spark a wildfire as well. So, you know, folks are being responsible by keeping their their yards clean of debris, but then they have an accidental wildfire because the either the pile was very large and creating a lot of heat, or it was a windy day and those embers get carried carried around. So want to make sure that if you are cleaning your yard like that and you're going to have a, a de- debris pile, make sure to keep it small. Always have water with you, a hose and a bucket uh, to make sure that you're able to douse a fire if it um, starts to get a little too large for you to handle. And always check the local weather conditions before before burning your debris pile. Weather stations are always good about being able to uh, talk to their local public about what to expect in the next 24 hours as far as moisture or, or wind in the area. All right. And then as you just said, um, it's always fire season in the U.S. at at least one region. Can you explain why that is and also maybe address how increasing summer temperatures, decreased rain, as well as those heavy winds impact this? Absolutely. Like we said, the wildfire season is year round um, and drought also increases our risks because we have a long term condition called drought. Right. And then we get a a short burst of rain or a short burst of snow. It's not always enough to get that vegetation really good and wet. So the risk for wildfire is still there. We associate wildfires with a summer season, but it's uh, not just a season. Like we were talking about with the backyard debris burning, it it only takes uh, a big gust of wind to move an ember from a or a safer area, a more controlled area, to a bed of leaves that you weren't expecting to light on fire. So it's really important that folks understand that they we need to be responsible year round with our with our fires, keeping them small, keeping water handy, and making sure that we're doing any kind of uh, controlled burning on uh, wet days, not not dry and windy days. All right. And then on that same topic, while we're located near the Roosevelt National Forest and the Rocky Mountain National Park, um, our community is pretty constantly aware of how important open lands are and how devastating fires can be. But many people sometimes view wildfires as an inevitable thing and might choose to start fires while recreating, even if the area is experiencing those high risks with dry weather and winds. What would you say to someone with the mindset that these are inevitable, even as they are human 
caused? You know, there are a lot of partners working together into in this large effort of protecting our nation's lands and ecosystems from from unplanned human caused fires. Um, summer is just uh, I think we all understand summer is a volatile time to have a wildfire, a fire that starts small can get large very quickly. We have um, a number of resources that respond to these emergency events, but they're still limited. So if, you know, if there's wildfire in your area, those resources that we have are um, responding to that specific wildfire. And if there's another area close by that needs attention, then we're, we've maxed out our resources, right? So we just want folks to understand that wildfires will will exist uh lightning fires occur every year <laughs> we we understand that so allow our resources to respond to those natural incidences and not be already tied up with an unwanted human start all right thank you and then shifting gears into the new public service announcement campaign smoky the bear has been a relatively iconic mascot for wildfire prevention on federal open spaces so what changes are coming to the smoky the bear public service announcements with this new one Smoky Bear is tech savvy. So these two new creatives actually capitalize on on that concept. So, you know, for all those times you've wondered what would Smokey do, these creatives have a fun way of presenting Smokey's message, um, which is only you can prevent wildfires. So he, we, the PSAs have a modern AI assistant, Assistant Smokey, and the one PSA has the dad in the back backyard with the kids grilling hamburgers. I think we're all very familiar with that in the summer. And, you know, he's stuck with those coals at the end of, of grilling and he wants to know what to do with those. So who does he who does he reach out to? AI assistant Smokey Bear. And the other creative has uh, two friends that are out camping and they have a friendly little competition about who's better about putting out their campfire, which is honestly the message I'd like for all of my uh, families that are visiting federal lands to have that nice, friendly competition. And so they check with Assistant Smokey as well to, to see who has the right answer. Now, Assistant Smokey is a fictional tool and not actually able to be downloaded. Sorry about that. But it is a fun little way to get uh, Smokey's message out there. And then why did the Forest Service decide to integrate artificial intelligence through Assistant Smokey? You know, Smokey Bear has been around for 77 years and we we got to keep him up to date just like all the rest of our tools. So a couple of years ago, he has his own Instagram and Facebook account at Smokey Bear and he's on Twitter at Smokey underscore bear. And so we want to make sure that even uh, our messaging, our visual messaging shows that Smokey is part of our everyday today. In your personal opinion, do you think that Assistant Smokey might become available as a non-fictional tool eventually? Oh, wouldn't that be so fun? <laughs> All right. And then um, how can people view this PSA if they're more interested? You can find the new uh, creatives on smokybear.com as well as additional information. There's coloring sheets for kids to download. There's educational material for teachers. There's games. There's all sorts of information about when to have a campfire and how to check with your local Forest Service 
office about uh, campfire restrictions or wildfire conditions. So smokybear.com is a great tool for folks to visit. All right. And then do you have any last thoughts before we go? Just want to make sure that everyone knows that Smokey's message is focused on preventing those unwanted human-caused wildfires. So the message there would be only you can prevent wildfires and to be a responsible recreator, double check your uh, local conditions before um, heading out to camp so that you're, you're knowledgeable about what the restrictions are and what, are, what the weather conditions are in the area. Thank you so much for joining me again today. Thank you, Coda. All right. That was Jessica Gilmore from the USDA Forest Service. And we talked about the new Smokey the Bear campaign that features artificial intelligence through Assistant Smokey. We'll be right back with national news. Girl, I'm feeling some college radio vibes. Oh, I got you, BB. You know that college radio is more than just the Coachella lineup, right? It's also like metal and sports and EDM and news and jazz and KCSU, where college radio is more than just college radio. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In women's basketball, the team is now 18-9, and losing their final home game against UNLV, 80-69. Their final regular season game will be against Wyoming. In men's basketball, the team is now 24-4, and winning against Utah State, 55-66. Their final regular season game will be on Saturday against Boise State. Both teams will be heading out to the Mountain West Championship the girls starting on Saturday, the men starting on Wednesday. In women's golf, the girls placed 11th at the show at the Spanish Trial. In men's golf, the team competed in the Prestige Tournament and won 13th place. If you are interested in any CSU sporting event to get student tickets, you can go to csurams.evenue.net to get your student tickets. My name is Eliza Drotart. This has been your RMR Sports Report. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock with KCSU News, and this is Tech News for Tuesday on the Rocky Mountain Review. After the billionaire promised to bring Starlink internet terminals to Ukraine, a SpaceX truck from Elon Musk arrived with new user terminals. Mitchell Clark and Lauren Gush from The Verge report that Musk sent out the devices after a request from Ukraine Vice Prime Minister Mikhailo Fedorov on Twitter. In a tweet to Musk, Fedorov said, quote, While you try to colonize Mars, Russia try to occupy Ukraine. While your rockets successfully land from space, Russian rockets attack Ukrainian civil people. We ask you to provide Ukraine with Starlink stations and to address sane Russians to stand, end quote. After delivering the devices, Musk responded by confirming that Starlink Internet now operates in Ukraine and that the company has more terminals in transit. In his reply, Musk included a photo of a truck full of Starlink technology. Despite Russia's use of malware and hacking, Ukraine so far hasn't seen major cyber attacks. 
Alan Suderman and Frank Bajak at the Associated Press report that despite an expected attack from the Russian government, the country has not completely destroyed internet access or otherwise put effort into other more devastating forms of cyber attacks against Ukraine. While this is the case so far in the country, former White House cybersecurity coordinator Michael Daniel says the situation could change as Russia's occupation continues. One of the reasons Ukraine seems to be avoiding destructive cyber attacks is that their industrial sector, unlike countries like the U.S., doesn't depend on digital technology in most cases. Although attacks haven't been as severe as expected, the ones occurring in the country seem to be a mixture of independent hackers and Russian state operatives, mostly as the country's current online existence allows for what experts call a free-for-all as hackers aren't being investigated. Social media platforms Facebook and TikTok removed Russian news outlets RT and Sputnik from their sites. According to Shannon Bond at National Public Radio, other countries like Microsoft, also stood up against Russian state media, blocking RT's news apps from its app store. With new pressure from users to remove media influenced by the Russian government due to misinformation and propaganda, social media platforms took action to limit content. Google acted in response to the Ukrainian government requests to remove content from Kremlins. Microsoft and Google both also blocked Russian state actors from engaging with advertising on their sites, and Twitter is using a warning system to label stories published by Russian state media as misinformation. If you missed any of these stories or our local campus COVID-19 or national news segments, be sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify by searching KCSU News. I'm Kota Babcock for KCSU News. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. And now for the weather. Today, we saw warm and sunny skies with a high of 64 and a low of 35 with hardly any wind. Wednesday, skies will be partly cloudy with a high of 65 and a low of 36, once again with those low wind speeds. Thursday will start to cool down with a high of 62 and a low of 38 with mostly cloudy skies and low winds. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in this Thursday from 4 to 5 in the afternoon for the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And if you missed any part of today's episode, once again, check us out at kcsufm.com news or on the KCSU app by navigating to either podcasts or shows. I'm Coda Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, David Demuth, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Bryn McCall, Jack Balsley, London Shell, Hannah Hitchcock, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Bridget Vandell, Eliza Droder, Dylan King, Michelle Ellis, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you.